where their second wife is. Well, it's great to be here at the uh, Tahoe Camp Meeting. I'm really excited about it. I've been to Tahoe one other time, and it was in the winter, and it was quite cold. And um, now, if I had come from Arizona here in the winter, I'd probably die. But coming here in the winter from New Jersey wasn't too bad. But uh, I did enjoy the time we spent here. I came with my sister and her husband and their kids and our kids and skied and horseback riding. It was just beautiful. We really had a great time. So it's great to be here again. Familiar faces. I see some friends from Arizona. I knew the Millers from Oregon. As a matter of fact, I have a little story about Jim and Kay. They called me from Kauai. They were working at Kahili Mission School, or Adventist School there, and said, we need a week of prayer speaker. Would you be willing to come? I said, well, let me pray about it. And so I held the phone over here. I said, amen, Lord, and put the phone back. And I said, we're coming. Now, you don't get an opportunity to do a week of prayer in Hawaii and say no. So I really thank them for that. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. It was just great with both the little kids and the big kids and everybody in between. So I was a, it's a pleasure to see them again as well. And your staff did a great job putting this uh, program together. I appreciate even the basket I had in my room. I kind of came in frantically <laughs> thinking, oh boy, it's 545. I got to unpack stuff. My ties were all in a ball. You know, everything fell apart. And I said, well, this is the, probably the best shirt I have that didn't get too wrinkled. So I'll wear this one today. I get here and they say, well, you don't need a tie anyway. So I'm going to put those ties away until Sabbath. So <laughs> someone likes that idea. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> but it's great to be here, and it's my custom to begin each night uh, with a word of prayer, each meeting, each sermon. I believe, as was said already, if we don't have the Holy Spirit here, uh, we don't have a chance understanding God's Word. So let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, I want to thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we have to be together tonight. <clears throat> Father, I want to pray specifically that your Holy Spirit would help us to know Jesus better. Father, what greater thing on earth can there be than to know Jesus personally? Father, that's the only way to salvation. It's the only way to heaven is through Jesus. And so we're so thankful that you've given us four different writers that expressed who Jesus was in in a history form through, through the Gospels and others who prophesied about him and even... John the Revelator who spoke of his coming again. Father, so many wonderful things in Scripture. We just pray that we can understand them better tonight. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout the week, I'm going to share different aspects of Jesus' life. And in a sense, chronologically. Because tonight I'm going to look at Jesus as a son. And how we can be sons and daughters of God in such a way to bring glory and honor to our Father in heaven. And then tomorrow night, we're going to look at him as a carpenter. What did he do as a carpenter? We don't have a whole lot on that. But Desire of Ages, in fact, they called me and asked me, what book uh, would you like to recommend that can't be Desire of Ages? How many of you have read Desire of Ages? Okay, if you've read it, guess what? Read it again. It's the best book on the life of Christ you can ever possibly get. So we're going to look at Jesus as a carpenter. We're going to see his teaching ministry the third night, his healing ministry the fourth night, his salvation ministry the fifth night, and then the last part of it, I'm going to look at his coming again, his second coming. 
what the greatest event on planet Earth will be his second coming when he comes again. And then we're going to look at, and then the Sabbath, I'm going to talk about how his life, his salvation, his ministry in the heavenly sanctuary affected me personally. And I'll share with you my testimony to Christ. Tonight, I want to start with Jesus as a son. Now picture this. How many of you mothers would like the responsibility of being the mother of the Messiah? Think about that. How many of you fathers would like that responsibility? Now, I, I, I put a little more trust in mothers for some reason. You know, because if you get a dictionary, especially one of those abridged dictionary, father comes right between fatigue and fathead and in the dictionary. And so I worry sometimes about fathers. On the other hand, there are some wonderful, wonderful fathers in our world. And I'm thankful for my father. Gave me a good straight path to follow when I was a young man. But mothers, think about this. Every single mother, Jewish mother on planet Earth, probably was told when they were pregnant for the first time by their mother, by their father, that you could be carrying the Messiah. You know, they're still looking for that hope that you and I have of having a Messiah born. And so there are Jewish girls today that are wondering, do they have the baby that would be the Messiah, the deliverer for the people? Picture that. What a responsibility that was for Mary, a young teenage girl, to have to think that she was carrying the boy child that would someday grow up to be the Savior of the world. Wow, that's an amazing responsibility, isn't it? I want you to look at a passage, if you will. passage comes from Luke chapter 2. Verse 41 to 52. That's where we're going to be taking our message from primarily tonight. It says, His parents, Luke 2, 41, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when He was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the Feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, The boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, excuse me, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought anxiously for you. And he said to them, Why did you seek for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with men. Picture this. The child who's supposed to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is missing. Mom and dad somehow loses him. Now they know what's going on. 
They know who he is because they were the one. Joseph was warned in a dream. Go to Egypt. Get out of here because Herod's going to try to kill your son. Mary knew who he was because she saw the angel Gabriel come to her in person and said, you will be with child and that child will be who? Son of God. Think about that. The Savior, the Messiah. They knew who he was and they probably thought, Oh, did the devil get him and steal this child? Now, was it the child's fault? Not at all. Now, when I was in Oregon, Gladstone County, someone mentioned it here in the announcement time. I was in New Jersey for six years, and then the Potomac Conference three years before that. So nine years I had served as a youth leader at camp meeting. So I would lead out in the youth programs. We'd bring in guest speakers, or sometimes I would speak or whatever, and, you know, have a good time at camp meeting and share the gospel with these young people, the teenage group, and so forth. It was wonderful. When I moved to Oregon, no one knew that. And so I said, this is my chance to hide. Now, someone told me, when you go to camp meeting, if you really need to rest, it's not going to happen for a pastor at camp meeting. But if you carry around a clipboard and a pen, no one will ask you what you're doing. Just walk around, and they won't even assign you a job. Well, I wasn't really that worried about working. I don't mind setting up tents, and I don't mind hammering, digging post holes, and so forth. That doesn't bother me. So I said, well, I'm here to volunteer. Well, what do you do? I'll do whatever you want. They assigned me the first year to locations. You know what locations is, right? Okay, helping people find places. Well, they told me, here's what locations is. You tell people where to go. I said, I'm from New Jersey. I'm good at that. I know how to tell people where to go. They said, no, 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 no. Not that kind of telling them where to go. Oh, okay. They said, you tell them where they're assigned, and if they can't find their trailer spot or their tent spot, you take them to it. Okay, no problem. And they even gave me a golf cart. And I love golf carts. Now, it's the only thing I can do well on a golf course is drive a golf cart. So I thought, this is fun. I get a golf cart. So I get to drive around. Second year I was there, they made me special agent. Now I'm starting to feel like, you know, man in black, you know, this powerful guy. What special agent meant was I was to take care of any kids if I saw them wandering around that had a band on and make sure I got them to their parents. That was an interesting year, because the first call I got, you know, we all had these code names, okay, and mine was Popeye, believe it or not, it's not because I have big forearms. The guy who was in charge, his name was Cranberry, and everybody had kind of a strange, and my partner's name was Brutus, as you, Popeye and Brutus, makes sense, right? So we worked together, and then I get this call, and the guy who was Cranberry was Jamaican. So he had this accent, and he would say, Cranberry to Popeye. And I'd say, Popeye, here, what do you want? He goes, we're missing a child. Uh, uh-oh, where? Well, last seen at the, um, at the youngest group, the kindergarten group. Now, not the cradle roll, but the kindergarten group. I said, oh, wow. Do they have an armband? Yes, and the parent is looking for this child. I said, okay, should I meet with the parent? What's the child's name? Well, the little child's name is Rebecca. She goes by Becky. I said, okay, well, I have a daughter named Rebecca who goes by Becky. I said, what's the mother's name? The mother's name is Lillian. I've got a wife named Lillian. I said, this is quite a coincidence. 
So I get on my golf cart, drive down, sure enough, it's my wife. I don't know where she went. I said, well, Gladstone's pretty safe, but I'll look for her. So my first assignment was to find my own child. I found her walking around with a little friend, one of the other pastor's daughters, and they were just hanging out and just having fun. Second day, the same two children were missing. And I said, somebody's got to get control of these kids. The third day, they called again, and I said, this is getting quite ridiculous. I said, I, I can't believe my daughter got out again. So I drive down to the kindergarten tent, and it wasn't my daughter this time. It was somebody else. And I said, oh, boy. Now, I figured out where my daughter would hide, so I said, I wonder if this other person's going to hide in this location. I searched all over campus, and then we couldn't find this child, and we were starting to get nervous. And the mother told us that the father, they were divorced. The father might have come to camp and taken her. We were frightened to death what might have happened to this child. And so before you know it, we made sure everyone who left that gate, we had to, we checked and looked in the car, who's this, who's that, and so forth as they're leaving. Fortunately, we found the child. She was playing in a, does anybody, has anybody been to Gladstone Camp Meeting? There's a section there they call Death Valley, okay? She was out playing around in Death Valley, and we found her. We were incredibly relieved. Can you imagine how relieved? Mary must have been when she found Jesus, who was going to be the Savior of the world. I want you to see from this story, there are some important principles for living as a true child of God. First of all, from verse 43 and 49, the Bible shows us that Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. He didn't want to leave his... He, he didn't want to leave because his heart was in the right place. In verse 49, he tells his parents, Well, why were you so anxious looking for me? Wouldn't you expect me to be in the temple? Where would Jesus be? In the sanctuary, right? And that was the only sanctuary, so to speak, on earth at that time, other than the little synagogues. And so here he was. The parents were worried, but he was where he needed to be. Now I want you to picture that. Can you imagine this 12-year-old boy confounding those brilliant Ph.D. scholars in the temple. I would give a year's wages to sit, with, you know, like they say to be a fly on the wall, to hear that conversation between Jesus and those brilliant leaders of the, of the people of Israel, those brilliant religious leaders. He confounded them. They couldn't keep up with him. This child was brilliant. There's a reason why he was connected to the Father in a premium way, if you will. Never separate, amen? And what happens when we connect with the Father, we don't have to worry about getting separated from him. You know, I, there are times where I've looked at, and I've gotten lost in thought, and, you know, and, and sometimes I get led away by... Even worldly thoughts. Not worldly in the bad sense, but, you know, I'm a baseball fan, a football fan. All of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what's happening with my baseball team. And I start looking, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, you know, watching a baseball game. But if the baseball game consumes my life, then there's a problem with it for sure. And if I lose my spiritual experience because all I can think about is what's happening with the baseball game. We're in trouble. I had a young man who stayed with me. I, I taught at Garden State Academy in New Jersey for a few years as a Bible teacher and chaplain there. 
We had a young guy come. His parents said, you know, my son, you know, kind of kind of on the wild side, he said, my son is a little bit, yeah, he's a little bit crazy. We're not quite sure how he's going to handle academy, especially the dorm. So, Ed, Lillian, would you be willing to have our son live with you? And I said, well, you gave me a good introduction. Of course not. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to... He goes, well, no, no, I trust you guys, and, and he likes you guys. I think, he'll, I think he'll stay close to you. You know, I think you can help him. Okay. We thought it was a challenge, a good challenge. Turns out this young man's name was Luke. He came in as a sophomore at Garden State Academy, and he was a little on the wild side. We found out why. He didn't have much of a, a spiritual life at all. Although his parents were great Christian people, apparently he decided he was going to go a different direction. And so he got to the academy, and he kind of got in trouble from time to time. Nothing major, nothing big, but a little bit of trouble here and there. And I had to kind of rein him in from time to time. And then every day, this was back pre-cell phone. Can you believe a time when there wasn't a cell phone? It's hard to believe it anymore. You know, I, I see, I saw, I, I swear this kid must have been four years old, saw standing there with a cell phone, you know, at a corner in Phoenix. I'm going, the kid, kid was about two feet tall with a cell phone. And it looked like a nice one, too. I'm going, wow, this is an amazing world we live in. But this was pre-cell phone. It was pre-iPad. It was pre-internet. And so how did you get your news in those days? TV or newspaper or radio. And so he would get the newspaper. We'd have a newspaper come to our house every morning. He'd get the newspaper. He'd tear it apart and go to the sports section. And he'd read. he was a Philadelphia Eagles fan. A Philadelphia Phillies fan, a Philadelphia 76ers fan, and a Philadelphia Flyers fan. I guess he must have been raised somewhere near Philadelphia, and Jersey's pretty close. So he was re- he would read the paper every single day, and then when he finished, he'd put it down. Well, after about maybe a month and a half, two months of that, I went to him. I said, Luke, I, you know, he had just finished reading the paper. He threw it down. He had about 20 minutes to get to class. I said, Luke, how was your devotional this morning? He said... What devotional? I said, you're doing a devotional every morning, aren't you? He goes, well, maybe I should, Pastor Keys, but no, no, I'm not. Oh, I said, oh, yeah, you are. He goes, no, I'm not. Oh, yeah, you are. He goes, I don't remember doing a devotional. I said, hold on, I'll go get your devotional book. I grabbed the sports section and I brought it back to him. And I handed it up to him. I said, tell me in there, uh, you know, what you've learned about Jesus, about God, about the Holy Spirit today. And he looked at me, and he knew where I was going. He put the paper down, and he said, I get your point. My parents have been after me to, do, to study the Bible in the morning for years. He put the paper down, and every morning from that point on, he had what they call in Spanish a montutina. He had a little morning watch devotional every morning. He said, Praise the Lord! He learned from that. What do we make our highest priority in our life? Do we truly want to be children, sons of God? Do we want to make our Father proud of us? Well, what do we do? We need to spend time with Him. You know, this was a a special time for Jesus. Not only was it uh, where they go into the temple for the Passover, but how old was Jesus? Twelve. What does a Jewish child go through at twelve years old? Bar mitzvah. The word bar mitzvah is very simple. It either means, depending upon which rabbi you talk to, son of the law or son of duty. So he was coming to make a pledge 
not to not only just to thank the Lord for this opportunity to to be a part of the the family of God, but he was making a pledge that he was going to stay faithful to God. Now we knew Jesus would never separate from God, but the devil would try to separate him. There's no question about that. And so he was there for this incredible reason to pledge his life to God. At 12 years old, they believe the child became a son of duty, accountable to what the teachings of the Bible were. Now he was accountable. And, how, and when I look at it today, we, we need to think, we need to be accountable as well. You know, when I um, think of what we need, what it means to be, to be about our Father's business, I think it means to preach, sure, it means to teach, it means to witness, but even more than that, it means to dedicate our life completely to Him daily. Amen? Paul says, I died daily in 1 Corinthians 15. I love that text. Because it used to puzzle me. What does it mean to die daily? Does that, does that mean I have to get on my knees, grovel in the dirt, do like Job and cover myself in sackcloth and ashes? What does it mean to die daily? If you die daily, Paul doesn't want to stay dead. What happened? He would be born again daily. Now, there's one true conversion experience. You have a conversion in your life. Typically, happens one time. You might be reconverted because of you know something that went on in your life, and you come back to Christ. But as Christians living a daily walk with Christ, we need to die daily and be born again every day. Reconnect with Christ every single day. My daughter was 13 the first time I went to the Philippines. This is interesting because... Uh, it seems like every major anniversary, I've been someplace. You know, uh, my fifth anniversary, I was holding evangelistic meetings in Maryland. My tenth anniversary, I was holding evangelistic meetings in Russia. In fact, these guys were members of my church when I was holding that meeting in Russia. My fifteenth anniversary, I was holding evangelistic meetings in Oregon. My twentieth anniversary, I was holding evangelistic meetings in Arizona. My 25th anniversary, I was holding evangelistic meetings in the Philippines. I can tell you right now, um, we've learned that when it's anniversary time, we're going to be holding evangelistic meetings. It's part of our anniversary. So I can never forget our anniversary. It's usually somewhere about in between the Sabbath and the state of the dead where our anniversary falls. Well, as it turns out, we took our daughter one year. She was 13, and my son was 15. They held their first evangelistic meetings overseas. We went with Quiet Hour. This was kind of pre-Shareham. Uh, you know how Shareham does the meetings now. Well, we went over there, held these meetings. I could not believe this little 13-year-old girl could preach the way she preached. I said, wow, she's an incredible preacher. You know what she wants to do? Speech therapy. But she doesn't want to stop sharing the good news about Jesus. Amen? doesn't matter what your profession, your vocation is. Don't be afraid to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be about the Father's business. Now, second thing. Don't lose sight of Christ even for a day. Think about this passage. If you were to look at it again, if you were to read it two or three times, notice what happens in verse 40, from verse 43 to verse 46. The parents of Jesus, trusted him so much that they weren't worried about him. They knew he'd be in the right place. They didn't realize the right place was in the temple. And so they started moving away. They should have distrusted themselves. They started to move away with a caravan back to their home. And what happens? They, they realize their son's not with them. 
Now I want you to think about this for a second. How long did it take for them to notice they weren't with Jesus? One, one, well, one day. It took them one day to notice that He wasn't with them. How many days, now you can say the other one, how many days did it take for them to find Him? Three days. So one day away from Christ cost them three days of anxious searching. Now, when I miss a devotional, I'll tell you personally, you know, I study the Bible, I try to read my Bible through every year. There are times where it'll take me two years, I don't quite get finished. It seems like it takes a year just to get through Chronicles, but I fight through it. I always get through it. It's a battle, but I make it. Sometimes it's numbers, but whatever. You know, there's a couple of chapters and a couple of books in the Bible that you kind of have to, you know, work hard to get through. But as it turns out, I try to read it every year. But I sometimes miss worship. There are occasionally times where I'm, you know, I get a phone call early in the morning. Ed, we need this as an emergency, whatever. So-and-so's sick. Can you do this? Can you do that? Jump out of bed. You know, I'll always pray. Lord, be with me today. And I'm gone. That day that I don't read my Bible seems to be the worst day. <laughs> always. It always seems to be I can't get it together that day. Nothing seems to go right that day. And it seems like it takes a couple of days to get right back in the rhythm again. That's what happened to Mary and Joseph. They lost sight of Jesus for one day, and it took them three days to get back into a relationship with their own son. And we can make the same mistake. It won't take us long. If we don't spend much time with Jesus daily, we're going to lose that connection with Him, and it's going to be hard to get it back. You know, the pastor of the largest church in the world... By the way, does anyone know where the largest Christian church in the world is? Does anyone know? Korea, right. It's in Korea. Do you know how many members this pastor has? Oh, it's more than that now. 250,000 members. Unbelievable. It doesn't seem possible. That's a quarter of a million people. How do you have that many members in one church? Now they're spread out all over Seoul. I mean, all over the city there in Seoul, Korea. But here's the thing that's amazing to me. He was approached by uh, someone that I actually know. He's not a friend, but someone I've met. Approached him and said, how do you make it? How do you cover 250,000 people? He said, the only way I can do it is to spend four hours a day in prayer to my Savior. Think about that. Now, I look at that and I say, how puny my prayer is. Four hours a day he spends in prayer to His Heavenly Father, to His Savior. It's no wonder He gets so much done. But you know, I look at my schedule. You know, I'm the, I'm the ultimate planner. I look at my schedule. I get this to do, that to do, this to do. And I am really time sensitive. In fact, when we have pastor's meetings, my, my pastors, even the departmental people, even the conference president called me the time Nazi. Okay, you're off the stage at 9.15. You go on 9.15. You're off 9.17. You're on 9.17. You know, I'm real time conscious. And I, right in there, this is how much time I have for prayer. This is how much time I have for devotional. This is how much time I have for Bible reading. This is how much I... You know what? This man just lets God lead him. He is on God's agenda. Don't you want to be on God's agenda today? Wouldn't that be the most wonderful thing? Just say, okay, God, you lead. Wake me up. And he wakes him up in the morning. He does never sets an alarm clock. Wakes up in the morning, and God leads him. Incredible pastor of the largest church in the world spends four hours a day in prayer 
boy, if I could even spend half an hour a day in prayer, I would be happy. You know, when I joined the church, I, I remember hearing the term, week of prayer. And when I heard that term, week of prayer, I thought, wow, how can these people pray for a whole week? You know, I could only make it like a few minutes at a time. And sometimes I fall asleep and I feel bad, like God's going to strike me down because I fell asleep in prayer. They pray for a whole week. Well, you know, it's the attitude of prayer, isn't it? First Thessalonians 5, what does it say? Pray without ceasing. Always be in an attitude of prayer. You know, I drive in Phoenix. I'm praying all the time. First John chapter 5, verse 12. You have a Bible? My favorite scripture. You all know this one by the end of the week because I use it in almost every sermon. First John chapter 5, verse 12 says, He that has the Son has what? Has life. Mary and Joseph didn't even realize they didn't have the Son for a few days. They really didn't have life. We can realize that as Christians tonight. If we don't have the Son, we don't have life. And the life he's talking about is not just life on planet Earth. He's talking about everlasting, eternal life. Amen? The story of Jesus being left behind serves as a good example of how we we need to trust God blindly, if you will. Trust His, trust His grace. Trust His love. Trust His mercy to get us through any, any trial, any time. Now, I want to share with you... Um, Desire of Ages, page 83. Write this down and read it when you, when you get a chance. It says, If Joseph and Mary had stayed their minds upon God by meditation and prayer, they would have realized the sacredness of their trust and would not have lost sight of Jesus. But by one day's neglect, they lost the Savior. But it cost them three days of anxious search to find Him. So with us, by idle talk, evil speaking, neglect of prayer. We may in one day lose the Savior's presence. And it may take many days of sorrowful searching to find Him again and regain the peace that we have lost. In our association with one another, we should take heed lest we forget Jesus and pass along unmindful that He is not with us. When we become absorbed in worldly things so that we have no thought for Him in whom our hope of eternal life is centered, we separate ourselves from Jesus and from heavenly angels. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? These holy beings cannot remain where the Savior's, Savior's presence is not desired. And His absence is not marked. This are where it's not marked. This is why discouragement so often exists among professed followers of Christ. This last statement, I want you to listen carefully to. It says, Many attend religious services and are refreshed and comforted by God's Word, but through neglect of meditation, that's personal, watchfulness and prayer, they lose the blessing and find themselves more destitute than before they received that blessing. Often they feel that God has dealt hardly with them. They do not see that it's their own fault. By separating themselves from Jesus, they have shut away the light of His presence. Make no mistake about it, friends. God wants to be close to us. Amen? I want to be close to Him. What a wonderful Father He is. Jeremiah 29 says this. It's not too hard to get. If you want to read this, Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13, it's not too hard to find God. You know why? He's always looking for us, isn't He? 
Notice what it says. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me. How? With all your heart. Amen. So the first two lessons are simple. We must always be about our Father's business. And secondly, we must never let Jesus out of our sight, not for a moment. Third lesson is this. They were submissive. Or Jesus, excuse me, was submissive to his earthly parents. Think about that. He was a, an incredible, he was the son of God. He was the master of the universe. Yet he was submissive to Joseph, the carpenter, and Mary, who, you know, no one really knew what she did before. They don't even know who her parents were. It's amazing. It's amazing how submissive he was. And we need to be submissive to the Father, too. I want to tell you a story. My father, when I was about 13, 14 years old, my father said, you know, Eddie, i got to teach you to start working on your own car. You'll save a lot of money if you do that. My father was an electrician. My brother, who's six years older than me, was already starting down the path to be a mechanic. My sister married a mechanic. <clears throat> and they were all skilled laborers. So he said, doesn't matter what you do in life. You go on and be a basketball player. It doesn't matter. It's nice to have these skills. So I said, okay, I'd love to do it. So my father put me under his old 1963 Chevy Impala. And I'd look up there. And, you know, they don't make cars like that anymore, do they? Well, my dad had a Galaxy 500 that you could fit 14 people in it comfortably. I mean, a car was amazing. Bigger than any minivan on planet Earth. It weighed as much as the SS Enterprise. I mean, the car was incredible. Got six gallons to a mile. It was unbelievable. I loved that car. But he taught me how to work on the car. And I got under there, and I, you know, he showed me how to do it. And the first time, he did it and just showed me how to do it. second time, I kind of assisted with him. And then the third time, he showed me what to do, and I did it. The fourth time... About every three, 4,000 miles, he said, okay, now it's time to change the oil. The fourth time, he said, I'm going to let you do it yourself. And I remembered his instruction. I went under the car, loosened the bowl, drained the oil. Then I went and took the oil filter off and, you know, put it in a plastic container, threw it away. And then I put the you know, oil plug back in. Then I put the, old oil, uh, the new oil filter back on or put a new oil filter on. And as I was putting it on, I started scratching my head. Now, there was something he said about the putting it on. Oh, that's right. I'm supposed to put a little oil on the, the ring. Ah, that won't matter much. So I just tightened it up. And then I thought, you know, they make these. I said, why doesn't my dad ever use this thing they call an oil wrench? You know, those little round things. You know, I said, we never use it. I'm going to get this oil filter on nice and tight. So I went and I cranked that thing down. I got it on there tight. It was not coming off. So the fourth oil change went very well. When he asked me to do the fifth one, I could not get that filter off. And so I said, Dad, I, I, I got a ball game tonight. I, I don't have time to do the oil. Filter. I figured my dad's strong. He'll get it off. I come home from my ball game. My dad's still working on the car. He had drained the oil uh, from the plug. And he had that oil filter cut in so many pieces. It was, uh, he was under there with a hacksaw trying to get the oil filter off. He said, did you put the little oil around the ring? I said, well, I didn't think that would matter. He said, I told you it would matter. I said, you're right. He said, what'd you put it on with? A torque wrench, you know? I said, no, that, those oil filter wrenches, isn't that what it's used for? No, they're made for getting it out, not putting it on. I said, okay. I learned my lesson. 
If I had been submissive to his wisdom in the first place, we wouldn't have had to cut that thing off with a torch. That's what ended up happening. He had to get a torch out to get it off. Wow, it was a lot of work. Usually an oil change is not that hard. And usually walking the Christian walk is not that hard. Yeah, you'll have trials, temptations, and so forth. But if you submit to God and listen to him, trust him, the walk of faith is not really that hard. God walks with you all the way, amen? I want you to think about this. And as we consider what, what happened to Jesus, Jesus grew because of his submission, not just to the Father in heaven, but even to his earthly parents. And that's what a true child of God does. He submits to his Father. The fourth thing, we need to be constantly growing. If you look at verse 52 in Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus grew in three ways. What were they? Do you remember? He grew in wisdom, stature, and what was the other one? Favor with God and with man. Now that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Proverbs chapter 1, 7 and chapter 2, 6 and 7 gives us a couple of interesting verses. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. Where does wisdom come? comes from the Father. Why don't we spend more time studying His Word? I don't understand it. You know, I had an incredible experience some years ago. These guys know this story. I told this one before. I was uh, a student at Columbia Union College, which is now Washington Adventist University. Pretty cool name. Well, when it was CUC... There were several seats. There was Canadian Union College, Caribbean Union College, Columbia Union College. There were so many, so they decided to change them. So I was there at CUC as a theology student, and my teacher uh, at the time said, I want you to go out and visit the community and, and take notes on the different preachers. Homiletics class. We're learning how to preach. So we go to this one church, and they have a great preacher there. I was astounded by him. Has any of you heard of C.D. Brooks? Oh, my goodness, he could preach a paint off the wall. I mean, it was unbelievable. I was sitting there, I was just loving it. I said, wow, what a preacher. You know who else was in the community at the time? A guy named Ron Halverson. So I went to listen to Ron Halverson. Man, guy preaches. I was just loving it. Now, I was raised Baptist, and Baptists can, you know, they can get pretty excited when they preach. I was listening to these preachers saying, wow, this is fantastic. There's a new guy moved into the community. He not only could preach, but he could sing. His name was Wintley Phipps. And so I was living in the heyday of Tacoma Park, Maryland. I just loved it. And we came back, and we had notes, greatest sermon, best, you know, blah, 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 and handed it in. Teacher said, okay, now I want you to listen to some of the non-Adventist preachers. Oh, boy. They don't have a chance against our guys. You know, it's like, you know, I was pretty serious thinking there's no way they'd have a chance. We went to a church, an African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME Church, one of the largest churches in Washington, D.C. 6,000 members that seated about 4,000, so they had two services. We walked in, the four, four preacher boys, preacher students, walk into this church to hear this guy preach. Sit all the way down in the front row. We were going to take notes. He gets up to preach, and he's preaching. He was a good preacher, too. I mean, preached with passion. There was sweat flying everywhere. I mean, and that room was cold. So, I mean, he was really into his sermon. 
And they preach a good gospel sermon. It was, you know, biblically correct. And we're taking notes, writing stuff down. And he'd say something. We'd open our Bible and find the passage, write it down, and so forth. At the end of the service, like in many churches in those days, they would usher you out. In my local church in Arizona still does the ushering out. And where do they start with the ushering? From the front. So we were the first four people to greet this pastor. My friend Frank, who's a pastor now in Kansas, was the first one to shake his hand. And he shook his hand, shook the preacher's hand. Great sermon, pastor. That was outstanding. And the pastor looked at him and the other three of us and said, I know where you boys are from. And we looked back. That's impossible. Do we have something? You know, on the back of our shirt says, I'm a seventh-day Adventist. I don't think so. You know, we had it. We were wearing nice suits. And so we said, now that's impossible. He goes, no, I know where you're from. I see me like where we're from Ge- geographically, like I'm from New Jersey, he's from Pennsylvania. What? No, no, no. I know where you boys are from. Like church? Yes. Church. Like denomination? Yes. Denomination. I said, he's never going to get this. He'll never guess. So I said, listen, I'll give you five guesses and you won't get it. I don't need five. I only need one. You boys are Seventh-day Adventists, aren't you? I was like, what? How did you know that? Because I'm going to tell you. I have 6,000 members in this church, and no one ever sits in the front row. I said, well, that shouldn't give us away. Usually no one ever sits in the front row either in our churches. He said, secondly, when you came into church, you brought your Bible with you. My members never bring their Bibles. In fact, if we didn't have pew Bibles, they wouldn't read their Bible. I said, whoa. He said, thirdly, Every time I quoted a verse, you guys were searching to see if it was really true. I said, that's right. I was feeling pretty good, and then he gave me the big one. And he said, every year about this time, there's a bunch of you students from CUC that come here that hear me preach. The bubble burst. I started thinking, wouldn't it be nice if we were known by number two and three? That we were still people of the book. You know, Adventists used to be known as people of the book. Amen? We should still be known as people of the book. No one should know the Bible better than us. We should be studying it daily. Start small groups in your home. Spend time in God's Word on your own, privately. God will bless. That's what it means to submit to His will. That's what it means to grow in stature. Now, Proverbs 16.7 says this, when a, way, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies at peace with him. Isn't that an amazing verse? When a man's ways please the, war, the Lord. How does that happen? By growing in grace. You know, I had a friend, I, you know, I'm not going to mention this person's name, but I had a friend who was a member of one of my churches. I was pastor. He, he decided, you know, he said to me, came to me one day, he goes, Pastor Ed, I'm having a problem with my neighbor. His dog comes in my yard all the time. And, you know, that dog makes a mess. He chews up things and he leaves big mounds of, you know what. And he said, I'm getting sick and tired of that dog. I'm thinking I'll go out and buy a gun and shoot him. I go, you can't do that. He goes, well, what about, what if I just get one of those air rifles and, you know, just hurt him a little bit. That would teach him a lesson, won't it? I said, yeah, it might teach the dog a lesson, but your neighbor might not like that either. Have you ever tried talking to your neighbor and just saying, Hey, buddy, you know, I, you know, I have a nice garden here. Is it okay? He goes, no, no, I'm going to teach him a lesson. 
I said, oh, no, this ain't going to go over well. I said, have you ever witnessed to this guy? I was hoping he said no. <laughs> but he said, yeah, I've told him about Jesus. I've told him about the Bible. I told him how to keep the Sabbath. I said, oh, boy. I said, this is really not going to go over well. Well, as it turns out, I get a call from him one day. And I've been, I'm called as the police are standing at his front door. He said, Pastor, can you come over to my house right away? I said, why? There are police here, and they're mad at me because I just shot my neighbor's dog with my air rifle. So I come over to the house, and here I am trying to intercede for this guy and his neighbor. After I intercede for the two of them, you know, he goes back to his corner. It's not like a boxing match, and the other guy goes back to his corner. I end up going to the neighbor, and I said, listen, I'm really sorry about he goes, you know, that guy's a smart man. He really knows what it says about the Bible. But he's a mean, nasty old man. And I said, well, you know what? We're working on him. Would you help me work with him? He goes, okay, I'll do the best I can. You know, one of the things that would help him stop being so mean is if you tried to keep your dog in your yard instead of his. Oh, I'd be happy to do that. That's simple. Come on, just ask, guy. You know, I'm thinking, why didn't he just ask him? It was that simple. The dog never ran in a neighbor's yard again. What kind of witness do you have? Is, is it a witness that shows that you're spending time with God? That you're on your knees in a relationship with Him? It should be if we grow in wisdom and favor with God, we'll grow in favor with man as well. What an incredible testimony on the negative side that was. Now I want to share with you another passage because this one's important as we go to the just before we go to the final point. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 through 7. There's, Hebrews, is called, Hebrews 11 is called the, what? The faith chapter, right? Or the hall of faith, some, of, some call it. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he was not seen, or excuse me, so that he did not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he what? Pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. We please God by our faith. Amen? Number five. I told you there were five. Number five. A child of God knows, knows where to find Jesus. Amen? Where was Jesus when his parents were looking for him? In the temple. In the sanctuary. There, you know, Ellen White even talks about this. You know, I love the little book, Steps to Christ. Any of you have that book? If you don't, get it. If you don't have it, ask me. I'll make sure we'll send you one. Or I'll get one from your local bookstore. We're going to make sure that you read that book. Because in page 98, it says that a true follower of God will do whatever it takes to seek communion with Him. Go to prayer meeting. Give Bible studies. Go to church. Go to camp meeting. I'm preaching to the choir now because you're here. Do whatever it takes to get in a close connection with your Savior. The true child of God will do whatever it takes to place himself in, 
in those positions where he can hear God's word, where he can draw close to him. And that's what happened in that in that passage with Jesus. He was in the sanctuary. Mary and Joseph went back and found him there. Where will we find him today? In our own sanctuary. Sometimes it's that private altar. Do you have a private altar? I challenge you to make one. Could be anywhere in your house. Could be in your backyard. But find, make a place where you can spend time with God in private. My wife is good at this. I, you know, there are times where I think she's got a personal connection with the Lord. When I when I pray to God, I say, God, please remember me. It's Ed. I, I you know, I need to talk to. You. When my wife calls, it's like God says, "Yes, Lily, what do you want?" You know, so it's like her prayers are always answered. You know, and, and I'll ask her, well, you know, such and such is happening. Can you pray for this? And, you know, we need this to happen. I need this. Can you, you know, it's amazing because she has a special prayer author she goes to. She will spend time in that prayer corner. It's a little corner of one of the rooms of the house where she has some books. She has her Bible and she sits there and she studies and she prays and she talks to God. I do most of my praying on airplanes and cars. <laughs> Traveling is where I do most of my praying, although I do have a special time set aside where I pray. We need to spend time in prayer because that's where the power comes from. Amen? If we're in prayer, God will answer. One of my favorite verses in all Scripture, Hebrews 4.16, it says, Let us therefore come, how? Boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You know how easy it is to find God? I, I call this God's phone number. J-E-R-333. Do you remember that? Jeremiah 33.3. You know, back when I was a kid, you used to have to die. You did it by letter and number. It was like Bensonhurst 971 or, you know, whatever, you know, 382 or J-E-R, you know. In this case, it's J-E-R-333. Jeremiah 33.3. Every Bible look at it. Jeremiah tells us, he challenges us, God speaking through the prophet, Call on me. And what will he do? I will answer and show you what? Great things. Call on him. Call on him. I had an interesting experience. I was living in um, uh, Lincoln City at the time. I was on the Oregon Conference Executive Committee. I was driving to, up to the uh, conference office in, in uh, Clackamas. And as I'm driving up the road, I see this car stuck on the side of the road. I'll never forget as long as I live. This guy, brand new, beautiful BMW. I was driving my old Ford Escort that had 287,000 miles on it. The guy stuck on the side of the road. It's pouring, raining like only it can rain in certain parts of Oregon. Any of you been to Oregon through one of those gully washes? I'm telling you, I've never seen rain like Oregon rain. It comes out sideways and straight down at the same time. They like meet in the middle. Boom, big splashes. The raindrops hit the ground like a like like someone filled the water balloon. You know, it was amazing. This rainstorm. This guy's out there in a suit in his arms. He's flailing him, going, "He needs help." So I swing over. And I said, "I need to get to a meeting, but I got a little extra time." So I swing off the side of the road. I pull over, pull behind his beautiful, brand new looking car. I get out and I say, "Hey, buddy, what's the matter?" He goes, "I got a presentation to make." I've only got 20 minutes left to get there. And it's about 20 minutes drive. I heard a noise. I thought I was having a flat tire. Jumped out of the car to look. The door closed and it locked on me. He was drenched wet. He said, I can't get back in. 
He said, what do I do? I said, relax. I can get your car up. Oh, no, you can't. When I bought this car, they said it was unstealable. It could, I said, listen, I'm from New Jersey. We can open anything. <laughs> so I went back to the trunk of my car, and in those days, I carried one of everything. Does anyone have a car like that? I had one of everything, went back, and we had what we called in New Jersey a lock jock. You would probably call it Slim Jim. Went in and played around with it, got the lock open. He's going, I'm going to talk to that dealer when I see him. It took me about 30 seconds to get his car open. I said, I huh, hope you make your meeting. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. But there was something bulge in his pocket. I said, hey, what's that in your pocket? He goes, what? And he pulls out his cell phone. I said, why didn't you just, how long have you been sitting here? An hour? Why didn't you just call someone? I didn't know I had the phone in my pocket. And he looked, you've heard the term filled with chagrin. <laughs> Okay, he looked like he was about to die. He said, I didn't realize I had the phone in my pocket. He said, you have AAA? He goes, I got every auto club known to man. He said, I feel so stupid. He said, just let me go. And in my, in my embarrassment, oh, go ahead, that's fine. He goes, and thank you. And he was trying to give me some money. No, no, no. God bless you. He, I believe the Lord let this happen. You're going to be fine. He goes, oh, the Lord let it happen. And then he took off. Never saw him again. But one thing I learned from that experience God is even closer than that cell phone. But half the time we leave him in the pocket and don't call him. We need to call him all the time. Talk to him always, amen? If we do that, we'll have a wonderful experience with Jesus. We'll know what it's like to be a true son of God. You know what I love my son? I have a son and a daughter, and I call my son the Labrador Retriever, and my daughter's the Siamese cat, okay? There's a reason why. My son is so easy to talk to. He's 23 years old. He starts medical school at Loma Linda on Thursday. I'm so thankful. 160-whatever students get accepted every year out of 6,000 applicants. I praise the Lord. But here's the amazing thing about it. He calls me every day to tell me what's going on. I love it. Don't you think your father would love to hear from you every day? He loves it when we talk to him. And when we do... We stay close to him. I'm going to close with a story. Maybe one that you heard before. I've tried to verify whether this is true or not, but it's a beautiful, beautiful story. <clears throat> it's a story of a, of a mother and father who's one of their children, their daughter, was really not doing well. They needed help. So it says, um, it says a young girl was diagnosed with a serious blood disease. The parents were told that it was curable, but they needed the perfect donor, the perfect blood donation. Both mom and dad willingly had their blood drawn. turned out that they weren't a suitable donor. But the little girl had an older brother. To, and as it turns out, the older brother was a perfect, perfect fit. Well, the day of the platelet transfusion came, and the two children were wheeled into the, or the operating room, and dad leaned over his son and said, I love you, son. Thank you so much for doing this for your little sister. And the boy simply said, Daddy, I would do anything for you. But can I at least say goodbye to Mom and Sis? And his dad was puzzled, confused. He looked at little Johnny and said, Of course you can say goodbye. But you, you don't have to say goodbye now. You'll see them in a little while. He goes, I know I'll see them again in heaven. Think about that. The dad's eyes welled up. His voice got all choked up. He looked at the son and he said, do you think you're going to die, Johnny? He said, yes. Isn't that what happens when I give my blood? Wow. 
He gave his blood. The dad told him, you're not going to die. Everything's going to be okay. Your blood will renew. God created us in a wonderful way. This child thought he was going to die. He was willing to do it anyway. Amen? Thought he was going to die because he loved his sister. He loved his father. And he loved his mother. Do we love our father so much that we throw our lives on the line for him? Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus would do for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you tonight as we start camp meeting here in this beautiful, beautiful setting. Lord, we just want to praise you for Jesus. Lord, we think of him as a son, so loving, so submissive to his parents. We want to have that same loving submissiveness to you. Father, whatever you would ask us to do, to teach, to witness, to preach, to hold a Bible study, to just spend time with you in prayer and worship, that we would do that, that we would begin this week recognizing that the only way we can truly have joy is to be completely connected to you. Lord, bless us tonight. May each one of us in our own way receive you anew. For we know as John 1, 12 says, As many as received them, to them he gave the power to become children of God. Lord, thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We look forward to a fun week together.